0: Welcome to Speak and Destroy episode 33. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about all things Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. This episode, our guest is Adam Dubin, director of the classic Metallica home video, A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, as well as the brand new Bay Area thrash documentary, Murder in the Front Row. Adam was college roommates with Rick Rubin at NYU and co-directed the early Beastie Boys videos for You Gotta Fight for Your Right to Party and No Sleep Till Brooklyn, which featured a cameo from Slayer guitarist and Murder in the Front Row documentary interview subject Carrie King. Murder in the Front Row also features interviews with past Speak and Destroy podcast guests Alex Skolnick, Chuck Billy, David Ellefson, Gary Holt, and Rob Flynn, as well as Charlie Benante, Dave Lombardo, Dave Mustaine, James Hetfield, Kirk Hammett, Phil Demmel, Rick Huneholt, Rob Trujillo, Tom Area, Tom Hunting, and more. So here it is my interview with documentary filmmaker and music video director Adam Dubin. This is Speak and Destroy. first thing I I want to talk about is your entry, not only into filmmaking, but prior to that, uh, you know, as a kid, what was some of the early music that turned you on? And, uh, you know, when did you first become aware that music would be such an important part of your life?
1: You know, music was just something that was always around. Um, You know, my dad listened to folk music, and I was aware of that. And uh, but the thing that moved me was like when I started to hear rock music and by rock, I mean, like classic rock, that it's what's now considered classic rock. And it's it's the the basics, you know, obviously, uh, like, you know, the Beatles becomes a big a place to start, but the Stones really grabbed me more. And then I kind of started backtracking and figured out that these blues songs come from someplace else and the Stones didn't invent them. And all of that kind of brought me to. Led Zeppelin, which was, you know, really, I, I love blues and, and that was like, you know, blues on steroids or amped up or whatever it was on, uh, probably a lot of things. And, and then it was just like, you know, finding everything that was like, kind of c- that connected from, from that point to, you know, to all kinds of, uh, heavier music. So. Um, I wasn't so much into the the prog rock of the time when I was growing up. It just didn't grab me as much as a a serious riff. If I heard a riff, I, I was in, you know. And so, any anything that's based on that that kind of music that has a riff, you know, uh, was was great for me. And uh, and so that was the music that inspired me. I, I was already in college by the time Metallica came out, so. It wasn't, you know, it was just something that was around, but it wasn't something uh, I always think like the music that you love best is what you grow up on and, and what upsets your parents the most. And uh Metallica wasn't that for me. I was just a little, you know, older, you know, uh, kind of what, what really got me going was was uh, was the earlier rock. But by the time I heard Metallica, I was like, oh, wow, this is this is interesting. It's like, you know, everything speeded up again. Another step.
0: Yeah, I always talk about uh this notion of time place and circumstance where you know oftentimes when you ask somebody about any classic band or uh, film director or you know anything in pop culture uh oftentimes the the differences you'll hear between well this is the best but this is my favorite have everything to do with who that person was and what age they were at what entry point they discovered something uh, i also love the thing you mentioned about kind of reverse engineering things uh you know because You know, when I got turned on to Metallica as a kid, um, you know, it's like then you go backwards and take it apart, and you're like, oh, this is Diamond Head plus Motorhead, you know, like you were saying about doing with the Stones. And, uh, you know, or or, uh, when people were getting really into the band him and Billy Vali would do interviews and he would say, hey, man, my band is just U2 plus Typo Negative. (laughs) You know, It's like, (laughs) uh, you know, and the way that, uh, you know, a lot of great music really does come from, uh, combining some things that haven't really been combined before and then putting that through the prism of your own personality and experience. Um, so where did you grow up?
1: Um, I grew up in in Brooklyn, New York, and then Long Island, you know, uh, and uh, you know different experiences. I mean Brooklyn I, I kind of you know was just starting to get into music, but Long Island, if, if, if you grow up on Long Island, you, you get a, you know, you really don't have access to clubs and everything. Not, 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 you know, the, the cool clubs, not like CBGBs. You have to go into the city for that. And so you wind up getting fully exposed to classic rock that is on like, like the major radio stations. There's not a lot of like college stations. I mean, if they are, they're, they're, you know, you gotta really search them out. They're blotted out. I mean, WSOU is one thing that, yes. that's still out there that's a, a, a beacon. Uh, but, I really discovered, learned about, you know, music that really got me uh, going was when I, you know, went to NYU for New York University for, for college. And then suddenly I could, I had access to everything that was going on in New York City in the early 80s, and that was quite a bit. And so I, I think, you know, at that point, it just, you know, uh, my musical knowledge accelerated from, um, you know, British blues groups, uh, m- many of whom were extinct already, to like some very current music that was that was live and happening now. And that, that became like a big thing. Once you're kind of old enough to go see live bands, you're, you, you know, you can take your exploration forward in a different way because now you're experiencing it as it's happening, you know?
0: Yeah, it's interesting, by the way, you mentioned WSOU because I grew up in Indianapolis and yet... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had bootleg cassette recordings of WSOU, uh, you know, shows, uh, cause that's how influential and important it was. So yeah, you mentioned, um, going to NYU, uh, if you could talk a little bit about the journey that kind of led you to enroll there. And then of course, uh, your very famous college roommate.
1: Yeah, exactly. Who, you know, was not famous then, but of course an amazing story. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I discovered film very early on. I, I don't know why when I discovered music, I didn't, you know, pick up and stay with guitar. I mean, I kind of liked it, but it wasn't my thing. But I picked up a movie camera and I stayed with that. And that spoke to me. And um, And so... By the time, I, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do all through high school. I knew I was I was going to make films, and so when, there wasn't that many music films that you could really get to see. But you could get to see like Woodstock and Give Me Shelter, and those things like really inspired me. And then just as I was going into college, um, MTV happened, and you know, MTV's happening. I guess there's both good and bad about it, but I mean, it certainly was the melding of Of music and film and therefore it was the the opportunity and the possibility was there you know I mean not not every music video was a great music video but I think it was cool that they were making music videos and that that you know it was kind of a new form and something you could try something with and I I I should I should interject
0: here uh, in the interest of full disclosure and tell you I was an MTV news reporter and producer in the early 2000s and as a Gen Xer uh, definitely part of that generation that grew up on MTV. And, and as much as, you know, it can be uh, fairly criticized, certainly at different points throughout its evolution for different things like any big, important cultural movement. Um, there's no denying how important and how exciting it was, uh, especially mm-hmm. in the, you know, in the early to mid 80s when it was exploding everywhere.
1: Right. Exactly. It's like it can be used for good or evil, depending. (laughs) Yes. Like, but I mean, you know, how happy was I when I saw the the hot for teacher music video from Van Halen? I mean, then and now it's still cool. You know what I mean? It's awesome that 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 stuff happened. You know, even,
0: you know, Billy Idol, Adam and the Ants, Cindy Lauper. Oh, my God. uh, So much, you know, stuff that was even like this is corny mainstream at, at the time. Now it's like. Man,
1: that stuff yeah. was so revolutionary. <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it really was. There was no, they did some amazing things happened, and like I said, you get you get you know kind of all of it, and um, so I, I you know for me I just you know I it was happening right there. But I I get into NYU and you know first day first hour first minute um i you know i walk with an upperclassman into this room and 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 the, the i just remember the guy saying yeah your your roommate some musician guy or something he was you know obviously the 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 guy who was walking in was like a little more of a jock kind of guy you know and he was like you know not hanging with the uh with the kind of you know more out there kids and everything and i was actually so i get into i walk into this darkened room that only has one light bulb on and every surface in that dorm room was covered with with um, speakers and electronic equipment and stacks of records and everything. And in the middle of it is this kind of set, you know, kid wearing dark glasses with a very deep voice. And I go, you know, hey, and he goes, so. And, wow, you the, know, he's the
0: dark glasses oh. even back then. Wow. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> dark glasses in the dark. And, uh, <laughs> And, and Rick Rubin, you know, was, was sitting there. And, uh, I think he was just concerned that he was going to get like a pre-med student or something, you know, some kid who would have to study all day and night. And, uh, I, I was not that. I was more like, you know, wanting to learn about all this. So, you know, we start, it's, it's kind of amazing. We start where, where a lot of people start. I mean, you know, murder in the front row has so much of this in it where it's like two people don't know each other, but if you kind of, can talk about music, you have a, a, a common language that you guys can, can, you know, meet on. And that's pretty much where we met. And there was only a little bit of his record collection that I knew it was more like the harder rock stuff. So I, you know, I, I, I could identify with like, you know, Judas Priest unleashed in the East. I remember that was there and, and motorhead, no, uh, no sleep no hammersmith was there. And we listened to that. But I didn't know the the hip hop music. I mean, I knew rap existed because if you walked through New York City in those years, you you, you had to know this. But uh, it was it was sort of coming out of boomboxes everywhere. But I didn't know much about it and what was going on. But that didn't take much. But a few weeks into it, and I was like, you know, I was like a sponge soaking up all this culture. So I was soaking up like punk rock, um, heavy metal, and um, and, of course, uh, you know, hip-hop and everything. So um, it was kind of a, a very, you know, kind of a crazy and, and uh, f- just insane time to be, uh, be, you know, getting into all this stuff.
0: Now, do you, now, had Rick met Russell Simmons yet at this point?
1: No, no. This is before. So this is 1982. Rick hadn't even produced a rap record yet. There was no reason that he would have met a, a Russell Simmons yet. Um, Rick produced. It still impressed me though. He had produced his own punk record for a band called Hose. R- Ruben had a band called Hose, which was, um, uh, I don't know, you, you know, it's a it's a Bay Area band, but there, there's a Bay Area um, uh, kind of hardcore band called Flipper. Yeah, and, of
0: course, two bass players.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly. It was instead of being very fast, it was very slow dirge-like uh, music, but you know, powerful in its in its way. And Reuben loved Flipper, and so Hose was very much based on the idea of Flipper. It wasn't; it was super fast. It was super heavy, and so he was into that. But what he did do was like go make his own record and press them and make a really cool sleeve and everything. And he had a band, and you know we'd go see the band, and I became like a you know a, a, a roadie for the band, you know, hanging out and you know carrying equipment, because it was just cool to like build energy around that. That that was really neat. Um, so you know we would start Rick Rubin and I would like walk through the East Village, and and he would go you know check on on how many records had sold. So I really got a, a a really great do-it-yourself lesson in how how you move records. Um, and there were cool record stores around the village, but at, at this point, I realized I'm, I was having the same kind of, uh, you know, young experiences as were the people in the Murder in the Front Row. I mean, yes. while I'm looking at, at these records in, in the East Village and going record store to record store, so is uh, young Kirk Hammett is doing the same thing, you know, 3,000 miles away, and so is – you know brian lou and a bunch of other people some who would become famous and some who were not so famous but we're all doing the same thing and you probably did it too that that trek looking for your music
0: absolutely and and you mentioned you know when you talked about showing up into your dorm room and, it, and it's these two strangers meeting for the first time you know there, there's a, a phrase a buddy of mine likes to use all the time secret knowledge and that yes. was a thing uh you know in the 80s especially uh, where you could you could kind of identify by the way someone looked or how they were dressed and certainly what they were listening to that there might be you know a person that you would otherwise have basically nothing in common with that there might mm-hmm. be some forms of secret knowledge that you share <laughs> mm-hmm. and then other bits of secret knowledge uh, that you're just dying to uh, mm-hmm. to give each other and um, yeah, that was a very specific kind of magic and yeah that yes. and that whole voyage of discovery like you said of um, seeking things out and constantly learning more, and I love. By the way, you know, you've already mentioned, uh, you know, even just talking about Flipper being from the Bay Area, or you know, you mentioned No Sleep Till Hammersmith, and of course, he would later go on to co-direct the No Sleep Till Brooklyn right. video, which Carrie King from Slayer was in, and Carrie King's in your new film. Uh, so yes. it's funny all these sort of you know these dots we can we can connect, but
1: yeah. Which you have no idea of at the time, you know what I mean? It's just all stuff. Of course, you know? of course.
0: Um, and, and that also reminds me of another thing. You mentioned Kirk, and obviously I'm jumping way ahead here. But mm-hmm. something I really enjoyed about the film, you know, Kirk is, uh, you know, if you think about the Some Kind of Monster documentary, for example, you know, it, it's very much, um, you know, James has gone through his thing and, and Lars has always been, you know, so – such a creative driving force and business driving force. And you have the two of them butting heads a little bit. And then Kirk's kind of the Zen, you know, uh soft spoken peacemaker. And which I think is very true to who he is. But one of the things I really love about murder in the front row is how much it shines a light on what a pivotal figure Kirk Hammett is in yes. the birth of thrash metal. Like he's not just the guy from Exodus that replaced Dave Mustaine he he was exodus <laughs> you know yes. gary holt talks about him handing <laughs> right. over the keys of the car you know and i just i don't know i just i love how much this film really uh gives kirk his due because and it, and it's not to say that you know Mustaine and hetfield and of course all these other legendary and important figures shouldn't get their due it's that they are getting their due in so many other formats and it's right, nice exactly. to see a, a film you know kind of elevate kirk and tell his story too
1: yes yeah, no, that, that I mean, that's really that was one of the the um, you know amazing things about this. i I, you know, of course, I knew a bit about Kirk's history, but just a bit. You know, I knew he started Exodus, but it, you know, it was, you know, he doesn't really talk about it that much. You know what I mean? And it, it, you know, when you start to realize, what you start to realize in the film and and in in you know the way people talk about him, uh, Kirk Hammett, is that is that he at one time was the central figure in, in an area. You know, so many people are saying that Kirk turned me on to this kind of music. or Kirk right. taught me how to play and Kirk did this and Kirk formed the band. And everybody's used to that kind of thing. You know, obviously Lars and James, you know, are so active in that kind of thing. But, you know, at one time Kirk was, was like, his own you know center of a universe and and making things happen and that's amazing and that's to be you know that's to be celebrated and and it is in murder in the front row
0: yeah i love in the film when gary says that you know to this day the way he plays a power chord the way he holds a guitar pick that's all stuff that kirk showed him you know day one
1: yes exactly So,
0: so uh you're going to nyu you're interested in becoming a filmmaker you're getting immersed in all of the amazing music that's happening right there in that area um, across all these different genres, um, where does this then take you? You know, to where you know you end up co-directing uh, those early Beastie Boys videos that were yep. so important in their own right. Um, bring me up right. to up to that. yeah.
1: So I, you know, I'm, I'm living at NYU, and you know, while I'm there, and you know, I'm friends with Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin you know, is doing a lot of other things. I mean Rick had you know, there's a number of people who were friends with him and and during that time Rick's interests changed. Rick is so musically progressive then and now. And so you know, Rick very quickly realized that that hip hop, which was, you know, kind of growing out of the the Bronx, New York, was really the new punk of its era. You know, it it, totally. it wasn't core, which everybody kind of thought was it was good, but hardcore couldn't go that far. Hip hop could obviously go very far, but, you know, Rick was interested in that scene and, and he was, he was correct and, um, started getting into that. So, you know, like Rick Rubin would do, he just made a hip hop record and he did and, and, you know, got with Russell Simmons and then they got a record deal with Columbia and, all, you know, So next thing you know, there's Def Jam records, the beastie boys were one of the hardcore bands that were just around. I mean, if you were around in the village at that time, there was a scene and uh, kind of built around the CBGB's hardcore matinee on, on, you know, the weekends. And the BC boys were a bunch of of a gang of, of, you know, bands and stuff, but they got interested in hip hop. And then they met up with Ruben who was interested. And Ruben's the guy who kind of crafted it. Like we can go make records with this, you know? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I I kind of knew the Beastie Boys, but like not as famous people. They were just guys that were around, just like a whole bunch of other people. Sure, uh,
0: but Polywogs Stew, right? When that was the yeah. early record, yeah.
1: Right. Well, the one that got Reuben very jazzed was was Cookie Puss. The fact that that it, it was exactly what he had talked about this before it ever happened. That you know eventually that that you know what excited him was that you know uh, white. Uh, kids would be excited by rap and they would adapt it and do their own kind of rap with it and you know not you know he just saw it as like a natural extension and in a way he's right I mean it happened with jazz it happened with rock and roll you know it was sort of a music form, um developed you know African American and then just you know Kind of gets picked up by by uh, basically you know white kids are usually the ones who pick up on it and you know for good or bad also you know sometimes they they do something great with it and in the case of the Beastie Boys that that's what happened but they needed yeah sometimes you know,
0: sometimes you get vanilla ice sometimes you get M and M
1: yeah <laughs> either way right it cuts either way and, yeah and, and that's what we got so I knew them all this time and Rick starts working with Run D M C who were just you know, then and now, just legends. I and mean, we even thought they were amazing then, and 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 now they're just more amazing. So, um, and and then you know, Rick starts working with the Beastie Boys. Um, I've always said that you know, if Rick Rubin were not you know up to his eyeballs directing Tougher Than Leather, the Run D M C movie, I'm sure he would have directed Fight for Right to Party. But he was as busy as could be directing a feature film. And, 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 and by so- the
0: way, for anybody listening who who doesn't. Uh, understand this or doesn't have this context run dmc were so pivotal and so important in i mean in a number of ways that hip-hop is a culture but particularly hip-hop in the mainstream and rap becoming something that
1: the suburbs
0: Mm -hmm. knew about you know this was years before uh you know diamond selling records from mc hammer and vanilla ice and marky mark and people that were like some of the big huge huge pop stars to come out of hip-hop Run DMC was, was really the first, like, crossover. And, and, and I thought about that, you know, when you set that scene so well of the, the single light bulb and Rick sitting in the college dorm room with all the speakers and records. um, You know, yeah, he's the guy who, who's going to know, you know, Aerosmith, who <laughs> at the time, you know, was, was on the rocks, no no pun intended. Um, it, You know, Rick's the kind of guy that's going to know that Run DMC is hot and is going to remember this you know, loop from this Aerosmith song. And, uh, yeah, it was just such an important time for something that is now so ubiquitous and is now taken for granted. Um, yeah, for, for you guys to be right there sort of in the, in the stew, uh, as that stuff's happening. I mean, it's just, and again, of course, you're not aware of any of the cultural implications of what you're involved in, but it's right. all happening around you and it's gotta just be so electric.
1: Right, so this opportunity came up to direct this music video that it and it was basically this coming back to m t v it was like m t v executives came down to the set of the movie. I remember them coming and they and they were like, if you know it was it was amazing to watch because fight for Right the party, the song was exploding on radio all around the country any d j that played that they played it in i remember Detroit they played it in Detroit, and like the station was besieged with with you know uh, request. What what was that? Play it again, you know, and all that. And and so this information was coming back to the office at Def Jam. It was very exciting to be around. And so the MTV people came down and they were like, we're holding a spot in heavy rotation for the Beastie Boys. If we don't have a video in two weeks, we're going to give that spot to another band. Now, it's great, Ryan, that you work with MTV because you know exactly how valuable that spot in heavy rotation was mm-hmm. in nineteen. 19- Six. It was it was like it was more valuable than gold because it could guarantee you gold. So, um, it we they needed a video and they needed it fast and and they wanted to work with Rick Rubin wasn't available. They wanted to work with my um, my co-director uh, and and uh, my my dear late friend Rick Manello, and uh, Rick was about ten years older than than myself and Rick Rubin. He was a uh, film student at. NYU. He had been. Now he I, he was like a film authority. He was like a film savant. I mean, he knew everything. Um, and uh, Rick Minello brought me along to co-direct with him. And you know, the rest is history. We 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 wrote and and create. You know, we, we wrote the storyline with the Beastie Boys, and then created Fei Your Right to Party. We had no money to do it with. All the money just went to buy film and for the crew and everything to pay a few crew members we just invited friends down and like then did the scenes and the, and the, the gags that we had written. And, uh, and you know, again, not knowing that any of this would become like iconic or legendary or anything. It just was, it was just like, can we get this thing done even, you know, it was like, there was no money to do it with, but it was a wonderful time because it's like, we just kind of relied on ourselves and did it. It was as do it yourself as you're sort of going to get. and and thank God, you know, Rick Rubin was the kind of, producer who would allow us to do it i mean he, he you know he, he just cut a check and let us go make this thing and you know the rest is, is history it went into heavy rotation again the song was was an, uh, an incredible song so i mean that's really what it starts with and uh you know the rest is just the beastie boys themselves i mean i i always think five Fear right to party just showed the world who the beastie boys were it kind of captured their character in a fun way and you know everything from there on is is the Beastie Boys themselves of course
0: yeah and one of the things that was so important about that video for me is I was you know uh, towards the end of my tenure in middle school and, and going into high school when that video broke mm-hmm. and I was already at that point you know I had grown up on new wave and I had an older yeah. brother who would got me into punk and then I, I d- just discovered metal and hardcore and all this stuff so mm. to see that video Um, and to see, you know, guys from the Chili Peppers in the video and uh you know, guys from Murphy's Law and just and to see uh, you know, I didn't know who Rick Rubin was yet, but I saw a guy in a slayer T shirt. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you know, it was just and of course I didn't I wouldn't have recognized Mutt Lang, but of course, you know, he was in it too. But but I, I just remember at the time how important it was for me and my group of friends because it really brought together so many seemingly disparate things that we were all into you know we were all into skateboarding we were all into mm-hmm. punk we were all into uh you know ll cool j and run dmc yeah. and and i was really into slayer and you know and it's like to see that video and there's a guy in a slayer shirt in it and there was just something about so many things coming together at once that
1: correct you know just yeah. made it so important it, it really did and it was a. Uh... It was, you know, very special time, obviously, and and a very brief time also. Um, So, yeah, it's but, you know, we you know, we have that that video. And of course, the B.C. boys um, at a certain point, they didn't need a record producer anymore. They were their own record producer. They didn't need film directors anymore. They were their own film directors and, uh, you know, incredibly talented guys who, you know, created a, a, you know, a huge legacy of their own. That's 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 really awesome
0: no sleep till brooklyn um which was of course another beastie boys video that you co-directed with your late friend um carrie king's in that video uh yeah what do you remember about how that happened
1: um <laughs> i remember there was a there was a good deal of um uh, fighting about it because uh the, at that point um you know rick rubin wanted um Carried to be in the video, and the and the Beastie Boys, uh, I think, didn't want to, you know, have somebody else get upstaged, what have you, in their in their own video. So, um, by that point already, there there was some, you know, kind of uh, wrangling going on already. I mean, there was already people from the record company coming down. That video shoot was a lot more difficult no sleep till Brooklyn, nothing mattered. So I'm not, I'm sorry, for fight fear at the party, nobody, nobody knew anything. So so it was like, it was really cool to just go shoot it. But it was, um, but as far as, um, you know, the, the, the rest of it, it was, uh, fight fear at the party from going to no sleep to Brooklyn, no sleep to Brooklyn was like a lot, a lot more fraught to get that done. Um, ultimately, it was sort of a compromise the way Kerry appeared in the video. That was what I recall. Is That was a compromise that Kerry would, would come in and play part of the solo. The other part of the solo would be played by, at first we wanted to actually get a monkey. Then actually there was a, you know, performing <laughs> monkey. There was a monkey that was around, you know, like for hire, you know what I mean? This monkey called Zippy the Chimp. And I think he showed up on like David Letterman a lot mm-hmm. and stuff like that. We wanted Letterman. to hire him. Well, Zippy the Chimp and his trainer got fifteen hundred dollars a day for showing up to do something, and that was more money than anybody was getting on the video. You know, I mean, there was no fifteen hundred dollars. So I was going to uh, say,
0: "Fight for Your Right to Party" probably could have been made for fifteen hundred total. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah.
1: So I'm giving you the real nitty-gritty here. So yeah. there was gonna be no Zippy the Chimp. So you know, for about fifty dollars, you could rent a gorilla suit. So that that quickly, <laughs> Zippy the Chimp became the gorilla, and I became the guy wearing the gorilla suit. That's oh, no wow. problem. I, I love that, and uh, and then it was like, okay, the gorilla will play the solo, and then there was a bunch of fighting about that, and then it's like, no, Kerry's gonna play the solo, no, and then it, it, anyway, the, the the compromise is that that you know, Kerry pushes the gorilla off stage and and, and plays the solo. That was that's how perfect. I went.
0: It's I mean, it's amazing because that's such an iconic moment to me, <laughs> and then to know all the backstory behind it. For some reason, the gorilla suit in that video always reminds me of uh, the gorilla suit stuff in uh, Trading Places. One of my favorite comedies.
1: Yes, exactly. It, I mean, it, it, which which Trading Place itself, of course, you know, uh, you know, harkens back to like. I mean, it's the most ridiculous gorilla suit, but it, 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 yeah. it's it's like something out of Abbott and Costello, which is actually, you know, Rick Rubin and I used to sit up late nights watching Abbott and Costello on on Channel uh, Eleven in in New York, and uh, and so he Rubin knew exactly how good the gorilla suit was. He was fine with that. It was just how much Gorilla versus how much Kerry. Get. Yeah, that's really what the discussions came down to.
0: I love it. Um, so, of course, uh, you know, being a Metallica podcast and being a, a Metallica mm-hmm. fan, uh, this brings us right to a year and a half in the life, which is uh, mm-hmm. not just for Metallica fans, but I think for. Almost that sort of cinema verite style of documentary filmmaking, I mean, with with, with bands. I, I feel like so many documentaries, you know, because, again, people got to understand the context. This is before MTV's The Real World, let alone the explosion of reality television as we know it. Yeah, uh, So many documentaries were kind of these polished, um, very, you know, designed by committee, yeah Uh, pretend looks behind the curtain Uh, which of course there's some exceptions we could name but uh, but but it was very much sort of you know this electronic press kit sort of vibe to a lot of other rock docs and you know year and a half in the life as suggested by the title it really gives you the feeling that you're just living with Metallica through what turned out to be um, arguably the most important year and a half uh uh, in their career i mean i was you know the biggest selling album of the SoundScan era and you know so on and so forth and you know everyone's lives within that band changed both uh internally and personally and of course externally um how did all of that come about and and what was sort of the initial vision uh you know because for example i know with the some kind of monster guys they were originally hired to do like a couple of weeks of a making the album thing (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you know, right. and then exactly. that turned into years, and and of course the, the big thing
1: that that I, you is. you know, I, I it sort of was like that with me too, um, although I I I had to like kind of um, uh, I guess earn my way in or something. Um, an idea was floated uh, of of maybe filming some of the making of of whatever was going to be Metallica's next album. Now at that time in, in in the fall of 1990, Metallica was famous for not being for not filming anything. They yes, were famous and for not in- doing,
0: And they'd only done one music video and that was controversial. <laughs>
1: right. And yeah. that was like a deal and they almost, you know, didn't want to do that. And you can tell by the music video. It's like kind of half them and half a movie. So, yeah. um, it's, uh, so in any case, it was like, uh, you know, I, I was, uh, brought in, you know, would I love to, would I want to document Metallica? Yes, sure, I did. But you know, we sort of had to first convince Metallica that, that this was a good idea. And by convince, I don't mean that you can, you don't convince Metallica to do anything. You sort of, um, you know, you kind of propose it as, as, a, as an idea. And if it makes sense to them for what they're doing, then you, you know, you might have a shot at it. And so I had to go into a meeting that was, I I always feel it was like a good cop, bad cop situation. Hmm. Um, They they were starting to work at one-on-one studios in North Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I was brought in. uh, I met with just Lars and James, Lars first and everything was going great. And I thought, Oh, this is going to be like pretty easy. I told him, you know, he knew about movies. He was,
0: I was going to say Lars, of course, is, you know, in in later years, like super into film and
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and and I thought, Oh, this is going great, you know? (laughs) And so, and, and, James comes striding in and, and and I always feel like in my mind as I play it back, I hear the, the, the theme song to good, the Bad and the Ugly. Right? <laughs> like, <you know>. totally. <laughs> and he, he looked like that. He kind of strides in like you know very Eastwood like, and you know he's, he's wearing cowboy boots and a cowboy hat. And he sits down in this chair. It's all you know and, 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 he's, and he's you know looking down the brim of his hat at me. And, you know, it's like, you now what do you want to do? You want to film something in here? You know, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, I, you know, I could see myself like, you know, getting as small as like an ant, you know, and I'm just like trying to explain how we could do this. And he's just not liking anything I'm saying and everything. And, I, you know, I almost was, you know, given the bums rush right there and sent out. And I just said, like, as a Hail Mary pass at the end, I was like, well, look, you know, I'm, I'm here, you know. Why don't I just get a camera and I'll film some stuff? And if you if you like it, that's great. And if you don't, then you'll never see me again, and it's all good. And Perfect. James kind of just shrugged, like, "Well, if that's what it takes to get rid of this idiot, then I'm not going to <laughs> fight that one." Path of least and resistance. Lawrence, yeah, exactly. And Lars was just like, "Well, go to it." And so it was literally on that level of a of a you know, it could have gone either way. And, but I got my camera, I, I, I filmed for a day just, you know, and, and then turned in my film and then went home. And I got a call a couple of weeks later, like they want to go for it, but it was still very tentative. It was like, it was, you know, it was very much probationary. Like you could get thrown out, you know, anytime. So don't get too comfortable. And I was like, okay, but, you know, I always feel like I, I did my best to like kinda of blend into the woodworks and, and not, you know, be a problem. I, I always say I knew when to turn the camera on. I always also knew when to turn it off. And mm. there's there's a point when you, you just, you know, you're not get, you're getting diminishing returns. You're not getting anything good. You're becoming a nuisance. And so I, I did that. It, it, in really a few weeks they were already they were hazing me. They were making fun of me. They were you know, which is all kind of one a way of getting in with Metallica. And um mm it's been a wonderful relationship. I mean, I'm I'm still working on stuff for them to this day, you know, from time to time I do mm-hmm. think things for them. And uh it's 29 years later, so I guess I kind of, you know, stood the test of time with those guys.
0: Yeah. Now, when they're making the black album, can you give me an idea of sort of what the mm-hmm. like what like how like how big was your operation? Like how many people were on your crew? And uh. because of course something like that Ideally, you just want one guy with a camera, you
1: know, given that right.
0: environment and everything. Uh, but you also have needs and sound. And so uh, how many of you were there and how did that there all work?
1: Just There was just two. Uh, uh, I, I was, okay, thankfully and thankfully for history, Metallica spent the dollar and shot, you know, paid so that I could film 16 millimeter uh, film because yeah. the level of video at that time was, was very rudimentary and it would not have looked well over time, but film looks classic. Mm-hmm. I, I've looked back at it even now and it looks like it was shot in 1990. It also looks like it was shot in 1970, you know? Mm-hmm. Totally. It's classic looking and so, to do film you film when you roll film the film is, is one thing and the and the sound is another so you need sort of two people that's why we clap sticks at the at the front of the roll so that you could line it up in the edit and um and so there was two of us there and we set the lights and then you know kind of kind of go about our business and you know turn the camera on when we felt something was happening and turn it off and when you know and, and just kind of you know move around the room um, one camera, that, w- that was it, and and it was. Uh, I, I will tell you something though that was amazing. So you know, as as, as this is happening and we're, we're sitting there, um, thanks to Bob Rock being the producer, Bob wanted Metallica to play in one room, like play all together. Mm-hmm. Uh, prior to that, they'd recorded their tracks separately. As I, I, I came to find out, I did. I was never there, but I came yeah, to and find. And
0: I believe, uh, you know, like on "Justice for All," Kirk literally just came and played solos. Like you're Correct. Even in the room playing rhythm, yeah,
1: right. So it's like kind of they would just kind of work separately to the degree that they could, and then just that would be it. And they bring the move, you know, the, the sound mix, it all come together. And anyhow, I I start filming in this in the band room, and they're all working together. It's basically so that they can lay down drum tracks, but all four of them are there playing and I start hearing these songs. Now, I knew by that point, you know, Metallic's category, and you could tell that this was different. It was not the same, you know, a song like Enter Sandman or Said But True is not really the same as like what's going on on Master of Puppets or mm-hmm. something like that. But even in its raw form, I was very aware that something incredible was happening. I had this feeling. I was like, these songs are great. And Unless I miss my guess, this is going to go really well because these songs are unreal. And you would just, you know, week after week or month after month, you would kind of hear as the layers were added to them. Something really incredible was developing there. And when you started, even in a rough mix, you start to hear a song like Enter Sandman. You're like, oh, my God, this is like amazing. Like I want to if I didn't know these guys, I'd want to go out and buy this record like right now, you know, and and that kind of started to dawn on me very quickly that that what I you know I I couldn't have told you how many the albums this is going to sell but I could tell you that it was pretty incredible and this was this was going to be like a great album cuz basically to me that sounded more like classic rock than did you know their their previous albums which were very cool but were very progressive and you know to me Enter Sandman is like the greatest rock album you've ever heard so I I really Yeah
0: and and it's and the amazing thing about inner sandman is you know when you go back to just the record prior which was kind of the full extent of their mm-hmm. or more technical let's get 37 riffs into an 11 minute song yeah. but inner sandman's basically one riff for the entire song right. <laughs> you know right. a, a, kirk, a kirk riff yeah. by the way
1: right, right. Yeah, to me, it was like Black Dog or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was like something like that, or like, you know, I don't know, you know, something like, like just a full on riff, riff fest. So it was great. So, you know, you're hearing this. I mean, I was there hearing these songs come together and, uh, you know, just develop. And, you know, they, they, I, I was supposed to be on, it was supposed to be like four months. It turned into like 10 months of filming mm-hmm. in the st- studio. And then we, we got done filming and, you know, of course, by that point I was part of the woodwork, and and uh, and then Lars was like, okay, we're going to go out on tour, and you got to you know capture some of that. And so I was like, okay, great. You know, where are we going? It was uh, and and that's that was just you know, it just became a continuance, and even to the point that um, I cut together a short film that preceded Metallica's tour when they were touring arenas, uh, in in starting in 1991 and going into 1992. Um, There was no opening band. There was like this short film that kind of I think gave people a history of who Metallica was Mm because they were at that point gaining so many fans that there's a lot of people who their point of entry to Metallica was the Black Album. So they Mm -hmm. didn't know really the history of the band. And so this I I think it was about 15 minutes or so um, film short film would play. um, And then Metallica would come out and play. You know, starting with Enter Sandman. They were opening at that time with Enter Sandman. So it was a very, very cool time.
0: Yeah, I I discovered Metallica towards the end of the Master of Puppets album cycle and mm-hmm. you know, and it was like you know, I'm I'm am I'm I'm the Misfits and Outcasts. You know, we're wearing our denim vests and we're skateboarding, yeah. and I have my Metallica back patch and, and I'm devouring every little scrap of uh, magazine articles I can find to learn about the band and, and all yeah. that sort of thing. And I'm I'm discovering the Misfits and Sam Hain because they're wearing their T-shirts, and uh, so what's really interesting about the Black album and just sort of my my exact age, really, uh, the Black album came out when I was a junior in high school. And mm-hmm. Nirvana Nevermind came out when I was a senior in high school. So right. my high school experience okay. was, you know, freshman, sophomore year, being a nerd with, you know, five to ten friends that liked what I liked and we were all weirdos. Um, To suddenly my junior year in high school, every jock and football player and cheerleader knew Metallica. <laughs> and then really? my senior right. year... Uh, everyone was punk when, when smells yeah. like teen spirit came out. So I got to see that, that sea change up, up, up close and personal as a teenager going from someone that was, you know, that mm-hmm. had the secret knowledge to then, uh, you know, experiencing that whole thing of like, what happens when the world gets a hold of this thing that you love right. and means so much to you and all the emotions that come with that. Uh, right. so yeah, I, I want to ask you on the, while we're still on the subject of that documentary, a couple more things about it. One, uh, are you in the car with Lars during all those scenes when he's speeding down the four hundred five?
1: Yeah, uh, the, the answer is yes. I was, I was, I was seated in the front seat. I mean, if, it, <laughs> if he had gotten off the rails. He he probably would have done all right because he was belted in. I was, I was, you know, filming, and I probably would have gone through the windshield. So, uh, but I would have got the shot. That would been, uh, <laughs> as
0: long I, as someone I, could go find like, the camera. Get the yeah. damn
1: shot. If you're going to get run over, get the shot. Um, so I, yeah, I mean Lars, Lars was a demon driving back then. I don't know what he's like <laughs> yeah. now, but I, I took a few trips with him and, and he would um he was he would leave late. He had to get to the airport, as I recall, and he just I mean, he just blazed down the you know, I mean doing just illegal stuff, you know, going on side lanes and whatever he could do to get around traffic. And uh and you know, we made it, but I mean, you know, he had that that Porsche nine two eight and he would just floor it um it was it was fairly terrifying you know but, <laughs> yeah uh, it was for real dude it was like he looks was terrifying. terrifying
0: again that like fly on the wall yeah. you know yeah I, it's terrifying to watch <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so it, it's real, it, yeah. yeah and then there's stuff like you know one of, one of the sort of uh, more famous kind of fan moments i suppose is uh you know the dartboard with the picture of kip yeah. winger on it um and there's also some of the fun parts you know i've I've had an opportunity to meet bob rock before and uh mm-hmm. there's some fun parts where he's getting hazed about his, his band that he was in um, yeah. and uh, with so much material and so many months and months of filming um how do you determine which of those moments makes it and and was it and you know were there fights about things was there ever like ah oh, we really want this in but we can't have it or we really wish uh, you know this could have this scene could have been longer, or you know how uh how did that whole part of the process go down?
1: All right. So well, the the editing part was, I mean, you know, we were given you know certain time lengths that we had to get in. So yes, the 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 studio part was around 90 minutes, and you know we had we had certain time lengths that we had to get uh get in, and we also had a deadline for which we had to make it because it had to ship for for, you know, to be in stores at Christmas time. So it was, you know, we were under like very heavy uh, deadline pressure at the end. And, uh, there was some battles within the band, I guess, with, between what, what was getting in and what, what's out. But, um, here's, here's what I remember about what gets in. And maybe this again informs like kind of me as a filmmaker. I am mm-hmm. I love comedy. I mean, if you can tell by, you know, like the first music video is Fight, is fight for you. Like I love this stuff. And so if it's funny, it, it's kind of going in. And, and so uh, Murder in the Front Row has a lot of comedy in it. It's a lot of funny things. And so Paul, to me – Paul Bailiff
0: is nothing but uh, – I mean he's like, yeah, you know, a devil of thrash.
1: Right. <laughs> that's what he is. So basically it's like, you know, I mean – you know, poor Kip Winger, you know, he's had a like, you know, this is still part of him. I actually saw something on Blabbermouth not that long ago. I'm talking months ago where he's still talking about having that, those darts on his face, you know, all these years later.
0: Yeah, combine, combine that with Beavis and Butthead. Right, exactly. <laughs> the, I mean, the character guy, everyone hates in the Winger. I definitely
1: took a beating. Um, all I could say about it is is that, you know, the day I was filming, it happened to be Kip Winger on that day. There was a lot of people that, that that made a rotation onto that dartboard, you know. And it yeah. could have been anybody on any day. And the day I was filming that, it was it was Kip, and he had the misfortune of being that. And I don't know, maybe his revenge. If if I was him, I would have made a music video where I was dartboarding all the Metallica guys, you know. <laughs> but, but he didn't do that, and so. That was that's how he wound up there. I didn't put him there. They, he just on any given day somebody would wind up on that dartboard, and yeah. you know it wasn't him. It was any of the other hair metal bands that were going around at the time. Um, the, the, I, I have to say that I, I, I had uh, more than a little involvement with the Bob Rock situation. Um, <laughs> I was friends with um, I don't know if you know this guy, but it was his name. I forget what his actual name was, but Dimwit was the drummer for the Four Horsemen. He had been in DOA, he had been a drummer, and a Canadian fellow that he was from Vancouver. Sure, yeah, DOA. And, um, and his his brother was Chuck Biscuits. Yeah, drummer.
0: that's exactly what I was about to say. He's Chuck Biscuits' brother, right? Yeah, okay, yeah.
1: Right. So, Canadian rocker, he knew all about Bob Rock. He had, he, he literally knew, you know, he, he had, like, followed Bob's career because... Bob had produced like doA Bob has like a real punk history to him he's, mm-hmm. he's kind of amazing. He produced some really out there punk stuff um so and he also uh,
0: so has uh, new romantic videos where he's in a bathtub
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you know he he's um, I mean he's a real musician he can really he do all that sure. stuff so I mean it's kind of like it's you know you can have very wide musical tastes and he does it anyway dimwood had these records. I brought the records into the studio and I set it up, you know, from time to time Metallica would work very hard and then they would take a break in the lounge and come out there. And I strategically left some of the records around on the pool table. I knew they were coming out for their break and, you know, I rolled camera and I mean, it was like throwing like, you know, like raw meat to wolves. <laughs> and Metallica guys grabbed those records. They're like, well, what's this? And they he picked it up and I didn't have to say a word. I mean, they just, Took it from there. They they gave Bob Rock a real you know roasting uh, over the pictures on those albums, and you know I kind of felt bad, but I mean it's funny. Look, it's in his history. I mean you can't hide from your history. Of course, and And it's
0: uh, and it's all in love the way that those guys roast people. And and you know when you mentioned uh, sort of your trial by fire and your initiation into that camp, I mean it wasn't too long you know, before you came along, that Bob Rock was going through the same thing. And, and yeah. uh, you know, whether or not he was gonna make a record with these guys who had famously never really let anyone produce them prior to that experience. I,
1: I took a ton of hazing too. I mean, so it was, you know, it, it all went around. So I'm, I'm not, you know, it was just part of, there's only a finite amount of people in that studio. There's four band members, a few, you know, and a few technicians, and then a couple filmmakers. There's not that many targets, so you're going to get a beating sooner or later.
0: One of the things I wanted to ask you about as a filmmaker, you know, I think something that gets lost in some of these classic documentaries is how much, you know, what all sort of happens in the lives of the people behind the camera. Uh, Because Mm -hmm. we're watching, you know, the daily grind uh, for the Mm -hmm. subjects of the film. Uh, But, you know, when you talk about, you know, okay, you're gonna come to LA and do this thing for four months and then that turns into nine months and then you're gonna go on the road. You know, what's happening in your life around you know, are you uh renting a house? Are you in a hotel? Are you or were you married at the time? You know, like what was yeah. How does that all work for you no, I'm not, outside I, of the job? It
1: was, I mean, you. I've uh, it's happened a number of times in my life uh, with, with Metallica. Um, they're a wonderful band and organization to work with. Um, but there's many times when you're required to, you know, you put a lot of things in your life on hold mm-hmm. and you don't know for how long. And what I'm saying now could be said by a number of the people that work in their uh crew and their management and they have this great crew and a lot of long serving members of the crew and uh and but you know all of us have like you know given time you know and just been in a holding pattern sometimes because that's what had to happen so that you could you know be a part of this incredible circus that rolls on and um you know I don't I don't want to stress on it too much but I just remember that it was like, you know, you're in now, you know, you're, you're, you're part of the you know, you're part of the, what's going on with this band. And and because you're working with really what I think is like, like the crew members involved. And I'm saying now when you get out to the touring level, there's a lot of, you know, crew involved there. Um, but even in the, in the smaller sense, you don't want to let anybody down. It's why you work so hard, because you feel like you're you're working with the best People, you know, if you're in a studio with Bob Rock, you're working with, you know, really one of the best producers there's been, and you don't want to let anybody down. You want to, you want to pull your your, you know, weight in that situation. And uh, same thing when you get out on the road, you know, that that crew is an awesome crew, and uh, you, you wouldn't want to be the the weak link. So you, you you do everything you have to do for for that to make your piece of it come through. And uh, so it's it's been a you know kind of a crazy life sometimes but it's 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 really amazing you get to accomplish some amazing things as a result of it as being part of that experience with that band one of my
0: favorite moments from the touring side of the documentary that I think it really it resonates with me as a uh, blue-collar midwesterner like mr. Newstead and, and I think it's a great moment independent of it, of it being a Metallica moment but here they are the biggest rock band in the world in that moment and they're selling gazillion records. They're playing huge venues and there's that great scene, uh, where they're in catering and he's like making sandwiches to take back to his hotel. And I don't, (laughs) I don't remember exactly what he says, but it's something along the lines of like, Hey man, this isn't going to last forever. You know, and it was just, there's something about that. Um, that guy in the eye of the hurricane, you know what I mean? That just, that that was very sort of, uh, Almost mm-hmm. spiritual, almost like a little Buddhist moment or something in the middle of all of this rock right. and roll craziness. And I always, I always think back to that moment and how, uh, how much it resonates. Just as a,
1: yeah, I remember human, that human. You know, I, I mean, you know, look, everybody was at the, at that time, you know, the age they were, the time that it was, and everything. And, and Jason was, you know, he was always great to me, and he was. Oh, I, I will always say, Jason. In you know, I think where he made his mark with that band with Metallica was on stage every single night. I never saw him other than at 110 percent every mm-hmm. single night. So I always say every, any band would be lucky to have a player like Jason in their in their midst and. Um, but at that time, you know, and this is, you know, it's already legendary, the hazing Jason went through uh entering Metallica, it was it was, you know, it was already a gang and he it was a new guy entering a gang and it was tough, you know. And and so that was one of the that where Jason was like making some sandwiches to take back to the room, which was a sort of innocent enough thing to do, but You know, at at that moment in time, the Metallica guys, you know, were deciding to like kind of have some fun at his expense and make fun of him for that. And I think, you know, he had a very different look upon it. I I think he did know that that maybe it wouldn't last forever. But, you know, while it lasted, it was good. And uh, and I, I, you know, I I always, you know, think that that Jason, you know, made his own thing of it and and did very well. And I don't think
0: and I, I saluted that that moment you know for years while he was still in the band i don't even think about it necessarily in the context right. of what we know later and that he would leave no, and everything I-, I think of it more just in general with anything in life when you're up <laughs> yeah. having that having that 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 uh strength of mind to be able to see the force for the trees and go like yeah this is all great and i'm enjoying it but i'm also right. i recognize that <laughs> nothing lasts forever <laughs> you know there's the there's the next part of the roller coasters coming anytime. time
1: I, I, he, you know, he had some very good uh, pragmatic view of things, and and he, uh, of course, you know, he's not in for the kind of songwriting, um, publishing money that the other guys are in for. So I think he was, you know, he's like not gonna, you know, kind of go back to the hotel and 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 blow up the room service. You know, <laughs> uh, he, he was he was uh, looking out for things. I, I give him a lot of credit.
0: Although, uh, you know, guys from uh, Merciful Fate and Diamondhead have been, you know, paying their mortgages for Metallica covering their songs. So I would imagine yes. the the one riff per record that he has is probably still right. quite valuable.
1: I remember <laughs> when I was working with Danzig and, and he you know when when he moved out to LA and he bought uh, a house in LA and from what I understood it was paid for by Metallica covering you know the misfits records and stuff, you know right there yeah. It was like, you know, that's how that's how things got done I mean, it's, it's huge money to come that if, if you're in for that publishing. I have a
0: misfits tattoo I used to sing in a misfits tribute band uh, cool. The first four Danzig records are for my favorite records of all time um, I helped Erie Vaughn do his photo book. I've, uh, I've yep. interviewed Danzig a handful of times. I've interviewed Jerry a few times I um, I gotta I gotta ask you quickly about working with Danzig <laughs> All
1: right, I, I, I never directed a Danzig video my my uh, again, my late colleague uh, Rick Manello did direct uh, a couple of Danzig videos. Um, but I was on the crew working with Danzig, so um when they would go shoot like he liked to shoot a lot of live stuff and i I worked on crew and indeed working for Danzig. Was was a lot of credibility for me when I went to go work for Metallica. They mm. they knew that I worked for Danzig and maybe even spoke to those guys about it. But you know I I I stood in good stead because of that. Um, you know Glenn Glenn's an amazing performer. Some of the best shows I ever saw were were, were Danzig with that early band that yeah. that he had. And I'm sure he's he's great later. I, I I haven't seen it, but I mean when he was with John Christ and Chuck Biscuits and Eerie, I mean that was a great. Honestly great, honestly great. I'm
0: I, I would be way more excited about that reunion than any incarnation of any of right. those bands. Yeah honestly it, that, that's the show I'd love to see the most.
1: It it'd be amazing. So I, I was along for the ride. I mean I filmed and uh, you know, I mean Glenn is Glenn. He's not the easiest guy, but I mean he does give an amazing show on stage and you, you always had to respect that and he and he and he was really concerned. He wanted he wanted it to sound good for the for the fans so I mean you know some people think you know he's nitpicking and he's being a pain in the ass on the other hand I don't know i I always know he was trying to make sure that the that the show was the best it could possibly be for the fans so you got to respect that you know
0: yeah and for and for myself um you know someone like him being notoriously difficult and having a certain reputation it's that much more rewarding. Uh, when you're on his good side, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I came away from an interview with him once that started off really rocky and ended really well. And I actually had someone in his management office at the time call me afterwards to say mm-hmm. how much uh, Danzig appreciated the interview and how pleasantly surprised he was. And that's right. one of those moments where you're like, OK, awesome, because uh, great really yeah. hard at first. I'm glad I won him over. Right. You know, right. He just, yeah. He's just got to. Uh, Respect you and yeah. feel like you're not an idiot. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. <laughs> I think everyone kind of starts in the negative, and you got to work right. your way out right.
1: of it. You're on your way up. Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: yeah. Murder in the Front Row. How did that? Uh, obviously, you know, there's a lot of relationships there and a lot of history with so many mm-hmm. people in the film that you had that we've discussed. Uh, how? You know, why you to tell that story and how did that, right. how did that happen?
1: Um. Well, I I think it was, um, you know, do, do you do you remember? You know, the Blues Brothers movie. Of
0: course, I, I know where, <laughs> you know you were on a mission it, from God. Is that what you are going to tell yeah, me? Yeah, like, you
1: know, that scene—he's in the church with James Brown, and the and the the sun shines <laughs> through, and he's there, and it's like I've seen the light. You know, yeah. it's like, I when I when I. I knew Brian Lou a little bit from, you know, and I knew he was part of that early group of fans, but mm-hmm. we uh, ran into each other backstage at a Metallica show and he handed me the book when he had the book and, yes, yes. and the book just stayed with me. And I love the book and, you know, sure, this could have, this film could have been done maybe by a Bay area filmmaker, but maybe it's good that I wound up doing it because I, I sort of can look at it, from outside the scene not inside and Absolutely. you know I have my perspective on it um I certainly have you're uh, in
0: the world but not of it as they say
1: yeah and and I had this you know very good relationship with Metallica and uh that certainly helped um but I I think it was really the approach that made the difference I I I really felt like I knew this I obviously was not in the San Francisco Bay Area scene that's in the book I was 3000 miles away in my own scene at that time but um, I feel like I knew what this scene was about and I, I felt I could tell it. And so, um, I, you know, at a certain point I optioned the book and I just, you know, got the money together and I said, you know, Brian, we're going to go do this. And Brian didn't try to direct me to how to do it, but we both agreed on a, a similar approach. And that was that there was one moment in t- time here you know, where the bands were sort of all at the same level and the fans were kind of, everybody was the same age. Mm-hmm. And so in this movie, the we would not treat the musicians as, you know, gods that are way above the fans. It was like everybody sort of was hanging out together. There was camaraderie between the bands. Bands were helping each other. A guy like, you know, Kerry King coming to play with Megadeth. Mm-hmm for a few dates because they didn't have a permanent guitar player yet so it was you know it was all kinds of examples of this and Brian and I agreed on that approach and that's what informed the, the, the filmmaking and I filmed a whole lot of interviews with Bay Area uh, you know uh, supporters, fans, guys who drew the the you know the the, the um, flyers and so mm-hmm. forth. Way before I ever got to like interviewing the rock star people, you know, the people who are supposedly the rock stars of everything. And way before I interviewed Metallica, we got a lot of people interviewed first. And, uh, uh, I must have done 25 or 30 interviews before I got to the Metallica guys. And, and that was the way we all wanted it. I mean, the Metallica guys did not want to, it was not going to be the Metallica story. If they ever do that, that'll be their story. But yeah. this, this was, a, as I say, it's a story with Metallica in it, but it is not the Metallica story. And it's
0: and it's a very specific moment in time, which for Metallica, yeah. it's a it's a important but slice of time in this Correct. large and long career. Uh, but it, in and of itself, yeah. And I think it, it's important the way that you approached it in terms of everyone being a peer, because that's a big part of what made you know hip hop at one point. Uh, yeah. Punk, hardcore, a lot of stuff we've been talking about. What made it so important was that that separation between audience and performer was next to non-existent, you know. And that was one of the things that was so exciting about. And for me, as a kid growing up in the Midwest at the time, discovering all these different scenes all across the country, and and you know being part of trying to build a scene in my own town, yes, it was that excitement of accessibility to be able to, you know, because I didn't growing up prior to that you know i loved adam and the ants but i didn't look at adam ant and think that he was someone i could be you know he was more like he was a superhero or an alien from another planet and then right. you know when you get into punk or, or thrash metal and things like that it didn't have that sunset mm-hmm. strip uh hairspray polished thing it, it it was like oh i could they look like me and my friends we could we could do that we could you know um that's, that's, this is, this is tangible you know
1: yeah. And it, and, and it brought you closer in a lot of ways. Yes, 100 percent. Because then you feel right. like you know these
0: people even when you don't, you know.
1: Right. Right. But but you could know them. You know what I mean? They right. dressed like you. They didn't dress above you. They dressed like you, you know. And and it was, uh, yeah, That all of that I felt, you know, was there. And that's what we wanted to bring out. But, it, you know, again, I wasn't putting anything there that wasn't there. I mean, you look at the photographs, and there's one in the book of a, a whole gang of, of young people hanging out outside Ruthie's, mm-hmm. and one of those people is Cliff Burton, but he's and, and he's, by that point, well-known, Cliff Burton, for, as the bass player of Metallica, but at that point, he's just hanging out with his friends in the Bay Area, and they're all waiting to go in and see, like, a band at Ruthie's, so mm-hmm. it, that is the kind of thing that I think you know really informs the choices in murder in the front row and that's what we wanted to uh you know we set out to capture and i think we we captured some of that that aspect into the film
0: when rob flynn was on the podcast he called uh seeing metallica at ruthie's his uh ed <laughs> sullivan beatles moment
1: yes uh, <laughs> yeah, and it was <laughs> too yes. he's he's correct about that yeah it, it inspired him he he can remember it to this day you know as people remember who were inspired by the Beatles. Remember that? Um, yeah, it really, uh, Rob Flynn is, was, uh, he's in our film and he is, um, he speaks very well about being inspired by, by the scene and, and, you know, and then wanting to, to be a part of the scene, but also talking about the hurdles of being a part of the scene. Um, you know, having to, you know, getting up at Ruthie's, um, you know, I always think like you know, the Apollo Theater is like like you know, if you get up there, if you're not, they'll boo you right off the stage. Well, yeah. kind of in Ruthie's, they won't just boo you off the stage. You know what I mean? It's like the the slay team will come up there and do something about it. You know, and and so it's you know, talk about a tough crowd. You know, so um, yeah, you had to you had to have your chops together. You know, for this. So, yeah, and I,
0: and I I think uh, what makes guys like rob and alex skolnick so great in the documentary is that they have this vantage point sort of like you what you were saying about yourself as a filmmaker where you know they were they're a little bit younger than some of the other cats in that scene so they were they were around back then but more as fans at first like they had an opportunity to be fans of some of those bands and then become peers and you know what i mean like it's it, i don't know it's great to have them in there and um and provide that uh uh two more things i want to ask you about the movie real quick one is uh the graphics and the transitions and the little animations and things like that i think really elevate it and make it uh entertaining and and a bit a bit comedic and and also kind of keeps the momentum going through the documentary uh tell me a little bit about that and how that sure came to be such a part of it
1: yeah i mean i i just found there's um you know although i i made the film and most of it was filmed in the bay area um, I edited the film in Brooklyn, and there happens to be in Brooklyn a wonderful um, animation studio called Augenblick Studios, and uh, they do a lot of uh, work that's like on Adult Swim and things like that. And um, I, I, I knew them previously, but I went in and I said, look, I've got I've got this film, which they all loved. I mean, I showed them some of the movie, and they loved uh, Murder in the Front Row, and, and I said, I need like a few scenes done or really shots. And, and they got it. And, but they, Augenblick Studios, I mean, th- these young people there, like the animators kind of internalized it and like just, you know, really got the feeling of it. I always feel it, it, it the animation style almost has a little bit of that R. Crumb style to it. Yeah, uh, totally. To be, yeah. You know, very, very out there like that. And, um, and so it's, you know, it it really captured that feeling of of both humor, but it seemed to, like, just fit with with what was going on, and because it it still had enough of a style that it it almost resembled the flyers that, uh, you know, I found great creativity in the flyers that were made for these shows. I feel like that was even in there a little bit, and so, um, you know, once I saw their initial pieces, I was like, well, let's do a few more, and you don't want it to get too animated, but You know, there was definitely a few points where I felt that the animation helped carry the story in places where there was obviously nobody there with a camera or a a video camera or anything like that. And uh, so it, it really added to it. It's one of the things that people react to the most and really love is the animation and Murder in the Front Row.
0: And it, it really takes me back, too, because, you know, of course, we all had our notebooks and, and textbooks that were, <laughs> you know, where we had drawn, you know, every band yep. logo and every pitchfork and demon and <laughs> whatever yeah. else. Right. Um, and it
1: did.
0: And then I also, uh, the last thing about it, um, and of course, there's, you know, there's always the aftermarket. Version and, and things like that, but I can only imagine, much like a year and a half in the life and uh, any documentary really that, that has such great subject matter. And in this case, where there were so many interview subjects, you've got to have so much more stuff that just couldn't make it into a cohesive yeah. narrative film that people will actually sit well. through. Um, was there any was there any thought to breaking it up maybe into episodes, or um, you know, what do you do with that? treasure trove of of stuff you got to be sitting on
1: you you, yeah you know obviously you shoot interviews that that you know with each person and you wind up with hours of interviews and you know the movie itself is is uh runs a fast 92 minutes so Mm -hmm. it's a lot left over um i knew i wanted to make a 90 minute movie i knew the movie should play kind of the way the the music feels yeah that's like rain and blood. Right, exactly. Yeah. It gives a great burst of energy and never wanes, and then, and yeah. then you know, you wanting more. And, and so and the whole we were, album fits on one side of the cassette. <laughs> right. Yeah. So you know what? We, we we sat and we created a a whole bunch of uh, stuff, like a dozen bonus segments that we're hanging on to, and will be in in the um, you know, whenever this DVD and there's no distribution deal yet, but whenever this film comes out on download and DVD, um, we've got some great stuff in there. And of course, at that point, you're not limited by the same kind of time constraint that you're mm. limited by when you're, you know, making the film be the length you want that it mm. should be yeah. for theatrical. And so I think it's going to be some great insights. I mean, they're, they're, for instance, I would start off every interview, much like like you did, uh, Ryan, uh, you know, asking, like, what got you into music? And yeah. Some great, you know, you get great answers. You get all kinds of stuff that's really cool. And people are different, you know. A guy like Dave Lombardo, inspired by like the Cuban music mm-hmm. he was hearing from his parents, it's fabulous. And he's, you know, he's an individual there. But then other people, you know, kind of all had a common experience. And you know, obviously, Black Sabbath gets name checked a lot, and Kiss gets name checked. And so we made one whole segment of all these musical influences from all the people that we interviewed and it's really cool you know and of course it's comes together and there's one moment in it where it's like we go to a bunch of people and it's like kiss 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 you know <laughs> kiss you know got everybody and like you know I'm I'm guilty too I mean when Kiss Alive yeah. came I was just I had that. I stared at that record cover until I burned a hole in it with my eyes. It was it, just if you've if you've movie. never
0: heard it, you got to get Frankie Bello to do his Gene and Paul impression for you because they're <laughs> it's just it's like you're yeah. in the room with Gene and Paul.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. So it was really like it, you know there'll be some great bonus uh, pieces when when the film comes out, and then finally when the uh, when when the whole thing you a, know a,
0: a, you, you can you can indulge with that bonus stuff because you know you, you know you're not. Yeah, there's a certain thing you have to accomplish with a narrative film. That, uh, yeah, with the you can overindulge with the other stuff. So, uh, so last thing, um, you know, obviously your, uh, you know, you've been doing the film festivals and you had the premiere in the Bay Area and you know, there's all the stuff happening with the film and you're doing press and appearances and all that. Um, when things kind of slow down uh, as they naturally do, um, what's next for you? Have you have you thought about what's next? Or are you still just too deep into this or?
1: um i I, you know i have ideas about um about what to what i might want to do next um and uh i i I think there might be a story about like you know how we made the uh fight for your right to party music video because it's yeah i I, yeah it seems to be i wanted to see what the beastie boys did with their book and and i did you know of course it's great what they what they accomplished and i could just see where there's like a window there of that that short moment in time, but it's actually a lot of things were really cool happening. So that kind of interests me, you know, to kind of talk about that. Um, I always feel like there has to be enough time and distance and reflection to talk about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think uh, I think that's why everybody was so forthcoming in the interviews for uh, Murder in the Front Row, because it's the right time to talk to everybody about this stuff. Yes. And same with the Beastie Boys, they seem to be coming around. At at a moment, obviously, you know, Yauk is gone and, you know, we want to remember him. But um, it's, you know, part of that is like this, you know, I think Adam and Mike could still could now be able to reflect on everything they accomplished with that band. And, 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 you know, I I have my own thoughts.
0: Yeah, when when you're trying to grow creatively, you know, uh, Lars just posted on something on Instagram that today is the 23rd anniversary of the Until It Sleeps video Um, Mm -hmm. You know, at that time, getting Metallica to be in Murder in the Front Row was probably going to be difficult, not because, you know, not for any other reason than they were so they were working so hard to explore something else and prove some sort of other sides and, you know, have a different artistic point of view or whatever. And I think, yeah, like Mm -hmm. you said, uh, you know, enough time and stuff happened. And certainly with the Beastie Boys, all the effort that they made to distance themselves from that first record. I think you know mm-hmm. now time's kind of come full circle and it's like well now we think of that first record as a facet a moment of their career not their entire career and then much like Metallica you know we think yes. of that early Barry, a thrash scene as just part of it and they know that we all know that they're more than that
1: <laughs> so uh, yeah. you know now they're
0: comfortable you know basking in it yeah. and loving it for Correct
1: what it Yeah again it's 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 time and distance and you know you get you start to reflect on on what carried you here. Yes. And, and any moment just becomes a moment in a, in a, you know, this increasing series of moments and, and, uh, you know, you you just have a different perspective on it. Yeah.
0: And I I think your timing could be impeccable too, because, uh, Eminem just put out that record this year uh, with the, where the the cover art is a tribute to license.
1: Yes. I know. That was, that was was pretty wild to see that. Yeah. Uh, Amazing.
0: Well, Adam, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, uh, yeah, you're, uh, you were a wishlist guest even before oh, nice <laughs> Murder in the Front Row was up, uh, even before I knew you were the guy doing the Brian Liu documentary. So, yeah, um, man. Worked out perfect. Glad you were able to do
1: this. <laughs> Great questions. Thank, thanks. It was really nice talking to you, Ryan. And you you just, you know, you, you framed it up nice. So, good awesome. luck with everything.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Uh, and hope All to talk to you again soon. All right. Take care, Bye bye. That does it for episode 33. You can find out more about the Murder in the Front Row documentary film at MITFR.com. Keep up with all things Speak and Destroy at SpeakandDestroy.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey. And on Instagram at SuperheroHQ. Speak and Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. As always, you guys have been great. And I've been Ryan J. Downey.